would invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 19. And the portion of Scripture we're going to look at this morning is found beginning in the words of verse 10. Uh, John had just told us in verse 9 that Pilate's question, Jesus gives no answer to. And then in verse 10 it says, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. I'm sorry, I'm having a problem here with the Zoom program. There's somebody wanting to come in. And I just want to make sure they're able to come in and be able to receive... Um, oh, I don't know what's happening here. Okay, let me just try this one more time. I think we should be recording. Yes, I hear someone on the other side. So if you could just mute your, mute your phone if you're hearing us. Great, great. Now we can proceed. Now it was the verse, verse 14, John 19, verse 14. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. It is one of, at least to me, one of the mysteries of the modern world and of the modern church that so many in church and world view God's word as something that's dull, boring, uninteresting. How in the world did we ever make this not interesting? The things we have read and things that we read in this book has inspired epic Hollywood movies, great works of art, great works of music, and of literature. It's informed and it's influenced the great authors and writers of history. Shakespeare, think of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Think of C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. Think of the way in which 
music like Bach's passion narratives have been inspired by the very words of scripture, Handel's Messiah. The Bible inspires so much imagination in people of past generations, and yet in our generation we seem not to think such great thoughts of God. We don't see how scripture just assesses human beings in terms of our true value, both as image bearers and yet fallen image bearers. People today just don't seem to see in God's word that which ought to spark their interest of God's grace and mercy in the sending of his son into this world in a mission of mercy to seek and to save sinners. There's so much in scripture that ought to fill us with joy praise to fill us with the sense of wonder love and delight that we're ushered in by the grace of Jesus into a new age of light and love and liberty and learning of the ways and will of the true and living God to know the things that are beautiful to know the things that are filled with with wonder and with glory how could we have made this book this gospel, this story, these passion narratives, dull, uninteresting, unimportant, boring. I think one of the reasons we tend not to make it as interesting as we should is we're not enthused ourselves about the things we read in Scripture. There's greater enthusiasm on the part of God's people for the testimony that God has given concerning His Son, we wouldn't preach it in a drab, uninteresting way. But then also we need to note and listen and understand and see in Scripture what Scripture gives to us, which is a compelling narrative, a compelling drama of what God has done in history through His Son. We have a drama in the Gospels, in the narratives of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that simply excels anything and everything that can never come across or read any place else. There's a book that a man by the name of Fulton Osler wrote that was made into an epic Hollywood movie back in the 60s. The title of the book was The Greatest Story Ever Told. And that in essence is what this gospel is. It is the greatest story that could ever be told of what God has done in the person of his son. You see, God, John presents his narrative, his version of the passion of Jesus, of his sufferings, his death, and ultimately his resurrection, in a way that really does present to us that which is dramatically compelling. He's giving us these seven scenes going from garden to garden. He's given us the scene in the center of Jesus before Pilate that again finds its own sevenfold movement in and out of the Praetorium where Jesus is the chief figure and Pilate is the one going out and in before the Jewish leaders and Jesus It's something that is dramatically compelling in the way that it's presented and in the way it's presented it's also theologically profound. This is deep. This is incredible if we really understand what's going on in this narrative. So we've taken our time to sort of inch our way into it and um, what I'd like to do this morning is look to come to its final scene. Now, the final scene, as I'm presenting it to you this morning, really begins with the next of the final scene. 
where we ended up last week is that Pilate is filled with fear when he hears that this man before him, whom he is to pronounce judgment upon, has made himself the Son of God. And that raises all kinds of religious concerns and fears, maybe superstitions about what this possibly could mean, that brings Pilate to go back into Jesus' presence and to simply ask the question, Where are you from? And as we left the scene last week, Pilate didn't get an answer. Jesus does not give him an answer. And so now we pick up the narrative from that point. Pilate is left with a silent Jesus who does not answer his question. And he then turns to Jesus and he utters words that elicit from our Lord, number one, what I'm going to call Jesus' final statement. The final statement that Jesus makes about himself. And then we're going to look at how Pilate then goes outside to the Jews and we learn about the Jews' final sins. So in this final scene, we have Jesus' final statement, the Jews' final sin, and then finally, Pilate's final sentence. We have a verdict that comes about as to what Jesus is what has been determined about Jesus that he is delivered over to be crucified. So that's the division of our study. We're going to spend the majority of our time on the first and second of those matters. But let's begin with the final statement that Jesus makes about himself. Again, in the last study, we left Jesus silent before Pilate, not answering the question, where have you come from? Now this has probably made Pilate a little bit bothered, miffed, concerned, angry, hard to know exactly what he's feeling. I mean, think about it. He has, in essence, taken Jesus' part in much of this. He's gone out before the Jewish leaders and said, I don't find any guilt in this man. He scourges him, apparently with the intent of releasing him. The last thing he wants is this man to be found guilty under Roman law when he didn't do anything worthy of death. He has enough sense about what his role as a Roman official would be not to allow a miscarriage of justice. And he's not concerned at all to do what the Jews want him to do with respect to Jesus. He understands. They delivered him up out of envy. But now Jesus won't talk to him. He's asked him a direct question. Where are you from? And Jesus gives him no answer. But that's not to say Jesus, Pilate's question goes unanswered. Pilate actually does get an answer to Jesus' question, and he gets it in a most unexpected way. He's soon to hear from Jesus' own lips a clear assertion of exactly where Jesus came from and what exactly that means. And again, Pilate is miffed. The prisoner had the temerity not to answer him. He's the governor. He's the symbol of Roman authority. He's the dispenser of Roman justice. And so he says to Jesus, 
Do you refuse to speak to me? Surely you know. I have the authority to release you. I have the authority to crucify you. Up to now, I've advocated for you, Jesus. I've declared your innocence. No crime worthy of death. And yet you refuse to speak to me? I'm in charge here. I'm the governor. I'm running the show. I'm dispensing justice. And one of the ironies we find in John's Gospel is the way that Jesus responds to turn it all upside down. To turn it all around. In this response that Jesus makes, he tells Pilate all he needs to know about where he came from, who he is, and the true nature of what's going on here. Jesus declares this. He says, you would have no authority at all over me. Imagine a prisoner saying that. Now, in the modern time, you know, people go on the internet and make a big fuss about what they think an injustice this is or that is. I mean, I even get it. And I signed up for something that, you know, had to do with employment in the Orange County, and somebody put me on some sort of service where people that get fired can actually go online and speak about the injustices they've experienced at the hands of their employers. I mean, I, I, I remember a day you never spoke against, you never spoke up to your employer. The employer is paying, paying your salary. He had the perfect freedom and right to fire and to hire and to do all those things, but today uh, you know, they get online, they get docs, they get their addresses put out so that people can write them nasty letters how do you treat the so and so who has made this complaint in this way that you've done but uh, we're dealing with the ancient world we're dealing with the, where kings were kings, we're dealing with the time that authority really meant authority and this man was the governor how does a prisoner at the bar of Roman justice respond in such a way You would have no authority at all over me if it had not been granted you from above. Now what interests me is the way in which John's Gospel uses the term above very often to speak about exactly where Jesus came from. He came from above. He came from above. In the very context of speaking about the new birth, and the new birth in chapter 3 of John's Gospel could also be translated a birth from above. The Spirit of God gives birth from above because, you see, the Son of God has been sent from above. That um, let, let me give you the exact language of John chapter 3. In John chapter 3 and verse, in verse 13, Jesus says this. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Jesus speaks of himself as making a heavenly descent from heaven. Where did you come from? I came from heaven. I came from above. Remember Jesus telling Nathaniel, you'll see greater things than these. And drawing some, some reference to the vision of Jacob's ladder. 
that Jacob had of the angels of God ascending and descending from heaven. He says, you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The matter of heaven's entrance into the world comes in me, in my presence in the world. The heaven-sent Son of God has come from heaven into this world, come from the Father. You see, the language of from above is really the language from heaven or from God. It's from the presence of God that Jesus came. The eternal word that was with God, that was God, was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. John says, you'd have no authority at all over me. I'm the heaven sent son of God. You want to know where I came from? I came from heaven. I came with the authority of heaven and you have no authority over me. Because I am the heaven sent son of God come to do the father's will. And there's nothing you could do as Roman governor that's ever going to keep the will of God from being done. I've come from above. I've come from heaven. I've come from God. And the authority that you claim, Pilate, you don't really possess. It's been given. God's given you a special dispensation to do His will. And His will is described in such a passage as Acts chapter 4. Turn to Acts chapter 4. And here's how Peter explains what happened in Jerusalem when Jesus was brought before Pilate. When this trial took place. He sees it in the light of the second psalm. Psalm 2, it asks the question, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. That's quoted in the prayer of verse 25 and 26. And then Peter, in the light of this prayer, he makes this statement. In the light of the prayer and also the psalm, he says, For truly, in this city, they were gathered together, Against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever Roman law determined would be done. To do whatever the whim of the governor determined to be done. No, it doesn't say that. I made that up. It's not, that's not what the text says. It's not what the Roman governor determined to be done. It's not what the whim of Pilate determined would be done. But to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God had a will in this matter. God had a purpose in the sending of His Son. And God's purpose would not be thwarted. Pilate would do whatever God's hand determined would be done. You have no authority over me. But what is granted you from above, what's been appointed to you to do by my Father, I'm the heaven-sent Son of God you have no authority over. And in fact, not only do you have no authority over, you, over me, but what is granted you from above, what my Father has determined that you would do, but you think you're standing in judgment over me? Jesus says, uh-uh. You're not in the judgment seat. I am. I'm the one who is the dispenser of of justice. Isn't it amazing then that here the prisoner at bar 
who's brought before Pilate the governor with charges against him. This man is worthy of death. This man has broken our law. This man deserves to die. Yet it's this man who then says to Pilate, Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater guilt, the greater sin. It's Jesus who's going to determine not only that others have greater guilt than you, Pilate, but that, Pilate, you have guilt in this matter as well. He's not denying that Pilate has guilt. Because what Pilate is about to do is going to be against his better judgment. And he's going to stand before the people with the basin and the water. He's going to wash his hands and say, you know, his blood's not on my hands. But Jesus saying, no, no, you don't get away that easy, Pilate. You have guilt. Because light has come into the world and is standing before you in the person of Christ, the heaven-sent Son of God. And you have sufficient awareness of the reality of the heavenly world and a sufficient reality of the spiritual things and of a God who judges to tremble when you hear that they say he says he's the Son of God. And yet you're going to go ahead against your better judgment, against the sense of Roman justice, and you're going to issue the sentence of execution. And you've got guilt in this, Pilate. But Jesus is saying, I'm the just judge. I'm the judge who judges in accordance with righteousness. And I'm going to tell you something, Pilate, though you have guilt, and Jesus doesn't quibble about that, you have guilt. Those who delivered me to you have greater guilt. And you know why they have greater guilt? Again, I don't know all the reasons. The text doesn't say. But I would assume it's because they have greater light. They have greater light. Go back to chapter 3. And it says this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world. And men have loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. So whatever Pilate does, he has to extinguish the light sufficiently. So you go ahead with an unjust judgment. And he has guilt. But those that delivered Jesus up for envy, those that were seeking the glory, their own glory, rather than the glory of God, those who had searched the scriptures, for in them they think they had eternal life, and they blinded their eyes to the reality that these are they that testify of Jesus. They, they wouldn't see Jesus. They wouldn't believe in him, regardless of what he did. And again, the man born blind had, had a dead right. This is an amazing thing. Never since the beginning of the world has it ever been that a blind man sees. And you don't know where this guy's come from. That's a strange and amazing thing. It's willful blindness. It's culpable, guilt-worthy blindness. And Jesus says, I'm the one that has the right to dispense judgment. You go back to chapter 5, you see Jesus says, The Father has given all judgment unto, unto the Son. It's Jesus who is the judge of the world. You have the picture in the end of Matthew's Gospel of this return of the Son of Man. And all the nations will be brought before Him. And it's Jesus who will say, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And it's the returning Christ who will say to the wicked, Depart from me. It's Jesus who will exercise judgment. And it's Jesus who gives notice, puts Pilate on notice. 
That he's the judge of the world. Because he's the one that's going to assess guilt in this matter. Pilate, you are guilty. They have greater guilt, but you still are guilty. That's speaking truth to power, isn't it? That's telling the truth to the powerful man that Pilate was. God's judgment is just. They that knew God's will and did it not will be beaten with many stripes, Jesus says. They that didn't know his will and did it not will be beaten with few. There are degrees of judgment because there's degrees of guilt. Don't let anybody ever tell you all sins equal. It's not. It's simply not. People say, oh, if I think it, I might as well do it because it's all the same. No, it's not. It's absurd to make such a statement. No, all, all sin, sin. All sin is a violation of divine authority. So in that sense, you would say that all sin is worthy of guilt, but there's different degrees of guilt. Jesus says, they that delivered me to you have greater guilt, greater guilt than you. It's not Pilate that's declaring guilt and innocence in this court. I mean, he may in this court, but the ultimate court of divine judgment is the Son of God who bears rule. It's the Son of God who makes the determination. He has come from above. He's come from God with all the right given to him as the Son of God to judge the guilty. The wonder we read in the very next verse, from that moment, Pilate tried hard to release him. The rendering of the ESV is from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but no, no. It's just not that he sought in a you know, tepid way. He, he tried hard to release him. He said, how am I going to get out of this one? How am I going to abide by Roman law? And yet the reality that this man stood before me declaring his right to judge me. How am I going to get out of this? He tried hard to release him. But here's the problem. In the face of this final statement of Jesus, the sins of the Jews come before us with a greater sense of intensity and with a greater sense of unremitting zeal. Pilate tries hard to release him, but there's a force that's opposing him, even though he's the governor of Rome. The Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. They pulled out all the stops They were so determined to find a way to get this man executed, they were going to exploit a very sore point in Pilate's life. Pilate, I think I mentioned this to you when we began to look at this trial, he had a patron by the name of Sejanus. And Sejanus was a man whose name was the friend of Caesar. 
That was his actual title. And he was the one who led Pilate into a place of influence. That was Pilate's patron, who led the way for Pilate to become the big shot he became. But Sejanus, the friend of Caesar, ran afoul of Rome. He committed things against the Roman government that made the Caesar say, off with his head, he was executed. The friend of Caesar was put to death. The one who had the title of friend of Caesar was not exempted from Roman law executing him. Think they put a little fear into Pilate's heart? I'm associated with Sejanus. He's my mentor. He's my patron. He's the one who people associate me with. You know, these Jews are saying, You're not the friend of Caesar. You're not the friend of Caesar. And you got in the government thinking, hey, I'm the buddy of the friend of Caesar, but the friend of Caesar got executed. They make this charge good. I'm not the friend of Caesar. What's happening to me? When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement. It's the word bema seat. It's the, it's the official place where judgment is going to be enacted. There's a sentence forthcoming. There's a determination that's about to be made. And the time is running short. The day of the preparation of the Passover had come to the sixth hour. We're at noontime. We're coming towards the end of the day. When sunset comes, the Passover will begin. The Jews don't want to get defiled. They don't want to go into the praetorium. They want to keep the feast. And so he brings Jesus out. And I don't know what he thought was going to happen. That maybe they were going to behold Jesus and be impressed. They wouldn't be impressed with Jesus as much as he was. As much as he was. He had heard Jesus' words and he was filled with the sense this man must be speaking truth. This man is taking the place of judgment in his hands. Well, if, he, if I was so compelled by him, maybe they'll be compelled by him if he's just present among them. And so he brings him out. Maybe Jesus will speak to them like he spoke to me and fix the problem. Doesn't happen. He says, Behold your king. Well, Pilate's setting himself up for just an untenable situation. He might be convinced there's some regal dignity and authority to be regarded in Jesus, but these Jews hadn't seen it. They didn't want it. Again, their understanding is this man, if he's the king, must be the Messiah, and they don't want his messianic claims at all. Pilate thinks it's okay to call him the king because he's no real threat to Rome. But yet they're not going to be convinced, as he's been convinced, there's something special about this man. There's something that ought to be regarded about this man. And so they just cry out and say, away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate seems to be incredulous. Shall I crucify your king? Isn't it amazing? This Roman official seems to be more conscious of the legitimacy of Jesus' claim to kingship. There's something regal about him, something authoritative about him, something wondrous about him. But these Jewish people that had the law, that had the promises, they didn't see it. They didn't want it. 
And the very people whose claim against Jesus is that our law demands his death because he's a blasphemer, you know what they do? To get Jesus executed, they commit blasphemy. They commit blasphemy. You know what they say? They say, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Now you need to understand what Caesar's pretensions were. What did Caesar claim about himself? You know, if you think it's blasphemy that Jesus called himself the Son of God, Caesar claimed his lordship. Caesar claimed to be kurios. That's the Greek word for the Old Testament tetragrammaton, the four-letter name, Y-H-V-H. Kind of discussion with Pastor Nichols, how that's supposed to be pronounced, but however it's to be pronounced, it's clear that's the revelation of God in the Old Testament, the God of Israel. Caesar claimed to be like the God of Israel. He claimed divine honors to himself. So the reason many Christians went to went to death under Roman authority was that they refused to say Caesar's Lord. They said, no, 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 no. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus Christos Kyrios. Jesus Christ is Lord. That was their confession. Jesus Christ is Lord. If these Jews are saying, no, 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 rather than having Jesus Christos Kyrios, Jesus Christ is Lord, they say, Caesar Kyrios, Caesar's Lord. We bow the knee to Caesar, a man who claims divine honors. This, in the Roman Empire, was worshipped as a god. We have no problems with that. We have no king but Caesar who deserved, who's blaspheming? Who deserved to be executed under Jewish law? It's those that claim that Caesar was Lord. It's those that said we have no king but Caesar. But yet they're claiming allegiance to Caesar because they want to declare no allegiance to Jesus. You know, in a real sense, what makes the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that very matter, allegiance. Where does your principal allegiance lie? Where does your principal loyalty lies? To the Caesar as Lord? To government officials as Lord? To political parties as Lord? To man's agenda as Lord? To your own self as Lord? There's only one Lord of the universe. It's the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. And that's not Pilate. Pilate said, I have the authority. No, you don't. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's ascended into the place of authority in the universe of God. Where God has said to him, sit at my right hand. That I make you all of your enemies the footstool of your feet. It's Jesus that governs. 
Since at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That is the Christian confession. We have no Lord but Jesus. He is Lord and you're not. He is Lord and every pretender is not. He alone is the Lord. And it's this basic disloyalty to the God of Israel, this basic disloyalty to the heaven-sent Son of God, this basic disloyalty to the true Messiah of Israel that brings these leaders of the Jews, as learned as they were in the Torah, as learned as they were in the scriptures of Israel, to blaspheme the God of Israel, to embrace Caesar as a competing deity, and to have complicity into the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. And so the final verdict is in. Not because it's a righteous verdict. Not because it's just in any conceivable way that human beings would crucify the Lord of glory. There's no explanation of what occurred in Jerusalem. What Peter spoke in the passage we read in Acts 4. It's God's determination that His will would be fulfilled and the gathering of all the nations represented by the leaders of the Jews, the leaders of Roman authority, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the leaders of the Jews, the Romans officials, the Jewish officials, to do whatever God's hand had foreordained would come to pass. And though they are the agents that are guilt-worthy agents, it's the ultimate purpose of God to redeem a world. You know, you look at things in this world and you say, how in the world can anything good ever come? When you read the papers, when you see the things that are happening in the world, when you see the dangers that are in the world today, how in the world can anything come of good out of this? That question has been raised before in the scriptures. And the reality is that what man means for evil, God oftentimes does mean for good. Don't underestimate the ability of God in the midst of the most lamentable events of human history. When you really think about it, what's a more shocking event in human history than the heaven-sent Son of God to be crucified on a Roman cross. One who went about doing good. One who went about healing diseases. One who went about preaching the gospel. One who went about loving, compassionate, heart towards those whom he came across. And yet he's hung upon a Roman cross. What greater expression of the reality of human nature, what man is capable of, it shouldn't surprise us about the, the gas chambers of the Third Reich. It shouldn't surprise us the wicked deeds that people do, the bombing of the Ukraine, the, the genocides that were sought to take place in, in Bosnia, the, the horrific things that have happened all over the globe. It's not like it's never happened before. It's not like it's unprecedented. It's not like it's something unique to human nature. 
what was done to the original peoples that inhabited this very land that we meet and worship in, the very enslavement of people groups that, I mean, in our history, we're declaring that's biblical, that's right, that's good. That the slavery of the black people of this continent was, uh, was in their interests. It was a wonderful thing. Wonderful Christian masters that educated them about Christianity as they excluded them from every office in the church and every place of influence and power. I mean, the reality is, folks, fallen man can do just about anything and justify it. The heart of man can commit the most horrific acts and call it good. I mean, it's in the music of the culture. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> What's that? It's a statement of adultery that says, hey, hey, it's right. This really is right. Can't be wrong, but it feels right. Justify anything. The sentence is in, and it does expose the reality, the judgment of the world. They thought they were judging Jesus, and in reality, they were simply judging themselves. For what they did in ignorance, God meant for good. What they did in malice, God meant for good. They put him to death by wicked hands, crucified him, slew him. But God raised him up. God God raised him to the pinnacle of authority in the universe. That we would know a gracious Lord. That we would know a Savior that has the right to govern and rule and judge in perfect equity in perfect right, in perfect goodness, in perfect beauty, in perfect love. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, gave His Son as the sin offering, as the one that would bear away our sins, Blessed be God. In one sense, our hearts should be filled with worshipful praise, but also with the sense that it wasn't just the Jews, and it wasn't just the Romans, and it wasn't just them. They're just representative of what we are ourselves by nature, what we would have done in their place, that we would have taken the crown from off the head of the Son of God, and said, don't belong to you, Jesus. This belongs to me. I'm the Lord. I'm the ruler. I'm the one. We would sacrifice every truth we know, every principle we would hold in our own interests just to oppose the interests of God for our own supposed advantage. What folly! But yet God uses folly to bring forth the salvation of the world. Blessed be His name. Let's go to Him with thankful hearts. Father, we're thankful that we don't run the world. We're thankful that no human being determines the ultimate destiny of your, your creation. That you reign and it is good. And we are thankful that you rule. 
And we're thankful that in your rule you sent your Son, that he came from the glory he had with you from the foundation of the world into this world where he was rejected, made to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, made to be one that people spat upon and mocked and they cursed and they flogged and they put a crown of thorns upon his head and they brought him out beside the city and they drove nails through his hands and his feet and he was crucified and he was slain. And all the principles of justice were thrown to the winds and all the principles of right were dis- simply disregarded. That which was done so wrongly and so unjustly was the very thing you meant for the salvation of the world. And we, our minds boggle at such a, such a, a reality of what you have done in the face of human evil to bring about so great a salvation. And for this we bless and praise your holy name. We pray we will be humbled before you as well as filled with intensity of love and thankfulness and appreciation for the grace that you have bestowed upon us. We thank you, Lord, for this time in your word and pray something that we've seen in scripture this morning will spark our own hearts to greater measures of allegiance and loyalty and devotion to the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. As we come and we ask these things in his name, amen.